Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Failed Critic again this week. This week we are doing Failed Listener, which James will tell you about shortly. Uh, but I'm your host, Steve Norman. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. And not Jerry McCauley, because he is a useless waste of oxygen. <laughs> One way to put it. Quite frankly, his his disorganisation is appalling, and he won't be joining us this week. But he'll be back next week, um, where he'll be reviewing with Nan and I from um, failed listeners, which he was assigned to watch. But just briefly, he did say he enjoyed it, and thanks to the person who nominated him to watch it. Um, yeah, James, do you want to explain really what failed listeners is? And what we're doing okay. this week. Yeah, failed listeners definitely isn't just an excuse to do something different than go and watch Step Up for Miami Heat. Honest, we were all desperate to go and see that this week. I did. Um, <laughs> looks your type. Of, it, it sounds quite revolutionary, actually. Anyway. Um, it's so, a, it's look, a cinematic triumph. It is. I'm surprised it wasn't in the sight and sound top ten. Probably because it came out just before. But uh, it will be there in ten years' time, I can guarantee it. But what we decided to do, because that was the only big film, because still The Dark Knight Rises is dominating box office and no one really wants to go up against it, wasn't much out we wanted to see. So we thought we'd give the listeners, uh, our our loyal band of trusty listeners, a chance to ask us to review some films that they'd like to hear us talk about. Welcome to Failed Critic again this week. This week we are doing Failed Listener, which James will tell you about shortly. Uh, but I'm your host, Steve Norman. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. And not Jerry McCauley, because he is a useless waste of oxygen. <laughs> One way to put it. Quite frankly, his his disorganisation is appalling, and he won't be joining us this week. But he'll be back next week, um, where he'll be reviewing with Nan and I from um, failed listeners, which he was assigned to watch. But just briefly, he did say he enjoyed it, and thanks to the person who nominated him to watch it. 
yeah, James, do you want to explain really what Failed Listeners is and what we're doing okay. this week? Yeah, Failed Listeners definitely isn't just an excuse to do something different than go and watch Step Up for Miami Heat. Honest, we were all desperate to go and see that this week. I did. Um, <laughs> looks your type. It, it sounds quite revolutionary, actually. Anyway. Um, it's so, a, it's but, a cinematic triumph. It is. I'm surprised it wasn't in the sight and sound top ten. Uh, probably because it came out just before. But uh, it will be there in ten years' time, I can guarantee it. But what we decided to do, because that was the only big film, because still The Dark Knight Rises is dominating box office and no one really wants to go up against it. Wasn't much out we wanted to see, so we thought we'd give the listeners, uh, our our loyal band of trusty listeners, a chance to ask us to review some films that they'd like to hear us talk about that maybe we haven't seen. So um, in first section, we're all going to review a film that each of us either was recommended directly to us so mine someone said james I want you to review this film or from the list of films that were generally chosen someone chose a film that they hadn't seen so far so we'll get that and then in the second part we are reviewing vertigo uh which has not only just been named the top film of all time by the sound, sight and sound critics um but i managed to somehow kind of jog, jog someone into maybe recommending that as our main review as well after i found out that only half of our podcast had actually watched it before last week um, and then yes triple bill which will be available later on in the week is also failed listeners request um but we'll we'll talk about that when we get to that right. Shall I start then? yes Shall I so and if you want to start with your film that you were tasked with reviewing sure okay first film um well it's the only film isn't it we're not doing first and second just yeah, that's it. Um, was um, the 1998 German film by Tom T- uh, Teukra. Is that who you pronounce it? Teukra? Uh, Teukra, I, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, him. Um, <laughs> was It's Run, Lola, Run. I hadn't seen it before, so I was quite uh, pleased to be uh, given this film. And I know it's one of James's uh, favourite films as well. Yes, Thank yeah, you. definitely. Yeah, the basic plot is uh, Lola is a girl whose boyfriend, Manny, um, has lost 100,000 Deutschmarks on a subway train uh, that belongs to a uh, very nasty, bad book. Um, She's got 20 minutes to get to him, to Manny, in this phone box uh, and find 100,000 Deutschmarks for him. Otherwise, he's going to rob a general store and get the money that way. Basically, it's told in a, a very strange way. There's, it's told in three different alternatives that could happen depending on some minor event changes uh, along Lola's run to get to Manny. Um, and it's a very interesting way of, of, of filming the story. It, it kind of, I mean, I, I suppose the, the modern version uh, uh, that sort of copies that technique is something like Vantage Point or, you know, where it, it shows different stories from different sides. But this uses the same people doing the same thing. It just kind of tweaks it a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it uses a lot of flashy techniques, um, most of which I kind of enjoyed watching and I appreciated a lot of them, but it does mean that the plot is kind of secondary to the, the actual the way the story is told and, and the way that it's filmed. Um, so the, the focus is obviously on retelling the same story, but in different ways, which means that you can only really build up the same 20 minute plot just repeating it three times so you, yeah i mean don't go into it expecting to watch godfather levels of <laughs> complexity in the story and the characters 
Um, but it's, you know, it, it's a, a decent enough substance there for the story to have it repeated 20 times, uh, 20 times, three times in this, this 20 minute piece. Um, the character's quite interesting, uh, although, like I say, they don't have a lot of depth to them. They do try to draw it out through various different um, situations, like Lola's meeting with her parent, uh, well, her dad. Because you meet him three times and it's told in three different ways, it does develop that relationship and you get to see more of, of how their relationship works. Um, but it, again, I mean, it kind of just glosses over that just a little bit too much for me. But it's, it's great performances. Um, I mean, Franca Potenta playing Lola, she's obviously the star of the show. She's, um, you know, very charismatic and uh, she plays a very interesting and intriguing character. Um, and it, she kind of uh, almost steals every scene that she's in away from everyone else. Although the, the guy played Manny, uh, I'm trying to look through my notes for his name, but I don't seem to have written it down. That's a rookie error. Uh, he's actually very good as well. I mean, they, they do work very well together. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, basically, it, it's kind of a basic story told in an interesting way. It's got a very 90s European techno soundtrack to it as well. It's got a really thumping soundtrack, hasn't it? It has, it's, yeah. It's pervasive throughout the whole <laughs> film, but it, it's really, it's, I don't drive to it. I've made that mistake before, you know, driven around to the run loader on soundtrack and <laughs> you, you suddenly look at your speed, I think, well, hang on. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a bit like possibly a film that we're going to talk about later. Uh the the soundtrack is almost a character in the film. It, yeah. It's it, you you always are very aware of it, but it's not distracting. It's just it's a it's an integral part of the film, I think. Yeah, and right. it was also written by Tom Twyker as well. So uh, in a John Carpenter esque move, he was involved in the soundtrack as well as filming the film. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> I think Frank Potenta sings on one of the tracks as well. <laughs> really, it's very very homemade. Yeah, in a way. Wow. No, that just makes it better, though, doesn't it? It's yeah, like, it a relatively small budget. And to get all the stuff into it that they did, you know, some of the camera angles that they use in it are, are brilliant. I mean, as I said, I, I, you appreciate the way they've, they've told the story, but one of the ways that it is told is through this brilliant use of camera angles. So, like, the, the shots as she's running through the, to the street and it's sort of above her and then behind and it sort of flashes to, like, over her shoulder and stuff. It's brilliant. And it kind of builds up this very, very quick pace. Um, I really yes. enjoyed it. and the mix of animation into it as well. It really works. Yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? It, it feels very European in a sense, but yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other bits, one of the other lovely little motifs I like is the people that she runs past each time, um, and then you see a series of like Polaroid photos quickly flicking yeah. through them, showing the rest of their life, kind of thing. And again, each time that's a bit different, and there's there's little stories in there as well little vignettes of everyone's life uh being slightly different each time it's that's really really nice as well i think i said i think i said on uh one of the i think it was on the football 365 forum um this film got me as excited about cinema when i saw it in the early 2000s as reservoir dogs did when i first saw that when i was about 16 kind of thing not necessarily because it's the best thing i but because i'd never seen anything quite like it before uh, and yeah, it's, it does, it it's very it's very cinematic in that sense and that it feels like the kind of story that cinema can tell uh, and, and only cinema can tell. This could only be a film. This wouldn't work as a book 
or it wouldn't work as a play. You know, it, it would only work as a piece of film. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Um, and of course, Tom Twyka is the director of the new Cloud Atlas, which we spoke briefly about the trailer last week, which yeah. I saw whatever five minutes is and still have absolutely no idea what the hell's going on with that. So, but I'm, <laughs> I'm quite excited to see what happens. I think he also did a film called Heaven with, um, Kate Blanchett and Giovanna Ribisi. Uh, it was an, a, an Italian film not long after this as well. He, it, he's got a, quite an interesting filmography that I definitely suggest having a look at at some point. Yeah, I need to look more into it because uh, uh, into his um, background, really, because I just went into this film not knowing much about it other than that you've raved about it quite a lot. So I was quite excited yeah. to watch it. Um, and, I'm glad no, you enjoyed I mean, it, though, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did enjoy it. I wouldn't say it had the same effect on me as it seems to have had on you. Um, mm. I was at a very impressionable time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's quite short well, as your... well. And, yeah, you know, which, as you no know, I, for people not to watch it, mate. I love a film that's only 70 odd minutes long. Yeah. Um, my my one issue was that Manny did seem to be a bit of a dick, and I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him. He seems like a he he does grow as a character throughout the film, but for the first half, you think, oh, for God's sake, just grow up, grow a pair. Yeah, he's getting his girlfriend to sort out all his problems and stuff. And you know, yeah, she could do a lot better. But <laughs> he also looks bizarrely like um, former Leicester City striker Jamie Scowcroft as well, which did put me off the first time I watched it. But that's another issue. <laughs> Well, that's a, yeah, okay. That's not going to be the same issue for everybody, I'm sure. No, no, exactly. I, I do realise that's quite a, that's quite a specific <laughs> criticism. Yeah, but it was a great recommendation, um, and I'd recommend it as well. Well, I picked out of the list that was left of films that have been recommended or chosen for us by various people, a post-apocalyptic film, well, I suppose it's not really post-apocalyptic, it's more kind of on the way to apocalyptic film. The Day the Earth Caught Fire, uh, from 1961, starring a load of people that I'd not heard of. I'm not selling this film very well, but it is, it is actually quite good. Uh, starring Edward Judd, Leo McKern, Janet Monroe. I've not heard of these people, I don't know if any of you guys have. No, not many no. bells. <laughs> Um, the film, like a lot of post-apocalyptic films, even right to the modern day with the John Cusack terrible blockbuster 2012, um, there is some very dubious science going on, <laughs> which I'll come to later. But the main characters, basically, there's uh, a guy called Peter Stenning, and he's a promising journalist, but he's got divorced, so he's sort of, and he, you know, his life's a bit crap. And the editor's given him really terrible jobs to, and stories to cover. But his friend's sort of like a much better reporter who tries to help him out. Um, but this is where the dodgy science comes in. The Soviet Union and the United States have been testing nuclear bombs. And because of this, or co- well, yes, because of this, there's some strange sort of weather affecting the globe. So they send Stenning down to the Met Office to try and get find out what's going on, um, and this is where this is the really dubious science. These nuclear weapons tests have knocked the Earth out of orbit, and it's moving closer to the Sun. Oh, right, shocking! <laughs> I don't know how true that is. I mean, there's been lots of nuclear <laughs> weapons tests, and we're not getting any closer to the Sun. So. <laughs> 
I'll tell you what, it's a fear though. I'm I'm now wor- I've never been worried about that before, but now I am. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's just it's just quite a strange bit of science. Like the neutrinos mutating in twenty twelve. Oh yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, the government start rationing um you know, everything. Um but the scientists have got an answer. If they detonate a load of nuclear bombs in Western Siberia, the Earth will start going back in the other direction. <laughs> wow. <coughs> it's it's um, schoolyard science. I like it. It, it. it was the first thing I thought, actually, was to blow it back the other way. That makes sense. Yeah. No, I don't regardless quite, of which country takes the hit. I don't quite know how detonating it, you know, did they, did they detonate the test at the complete opposite end of the Earth to Siberia? In that case, you know, this is set in the Cold War, so America and the USSR aren't going to be doing that in the same place. It's, you know, they've not thought it through, have they? Stay. No, they haven't thought the plot through. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, the film ends on an ambiguous note because um, basically, you don't find out if it worked or not. Um, <laughs> there's two versions of the newspaper being printed: one saying "World Saved," one saying "World Doomed." Oh. And, you know, and you just see sort of that, then the people at the printing press is waiting for Stenning, because he broke the story, he gets to choose which one to run with. Not actually the situation <laughs> happening dictates it, but <laughs> what Stenning says. And then it ends with sort of church bells, so it's kind of like the end of War of the Worlds, ambiguous, but sort of trying to give you hope. But that doesn't make sense when you see the beginning of it, when it's just some bloke walking down London and it's roasting hot and you know, it's deserted, so. Right, what so, was, was it, it any good, again? Steve? <laughs> it was from 1961. 61. So it's kind of at the end of that black and white um, sci-fi film mm. period. Okay. I mean, and at the height of Cold War paranoia. Well, basically, this, yeah. this opening scene where you, this the guy is meant to be walking down the deserted streets of London and the mm. Earth's getting closer to the sun... To make it look hot, they just orange up the screen a bit. Nice, yeah. So <laughs> you know, it, it is quite enjoyable in a in a stupid, rather kind of way because, like I said, the science is ridiculous. And then I don't get the ambiguous ending when the opening scene suggests that everything's gone to pot. Right, I so, see. Yeah. Oh, so is the beginning bit? Then it, does it go back and well, is it a kind of like here's here's the yeah. film? Oh, this is what happened yeah. op- like three months the earlier. O- the opening is scene is some guy walking through London. It's deserted, and the orange screen implies yeah. that the Earth is incredibly close it's to the literally sun. Literally catching fire. But then it, yeah, then it goes back a few months. I see. But then the right. ending's ambiguous, so. You don't so they've of... kind of forgotten that they gave and they forgot their ambiguous ending. They forgot that they've actually already it, told it you seems that, the that earth's way. I mean, even right. even though in the film, like the big cities are evacuated, there must still be people there because that these guys are working for the Daily Express, which is based in London. So London's not going to be completely deserted, but the opening scene is. So it doesn't kind of yeah. It doesn't mm. the beginning and end doesn't kind of tally up unless I'm missing something really obvious. I see, but it, it is it is a fun watch. In a bit of a silly way. I mean, I don't think it's meant to be taken too seriously. Yeah. Um, okay. It's, well, it's, maybe it's, I'll watch it if it's ever on TV. I won't go I, out of my way to watch I it. I can't though. ever see it being on TV, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> I bet it's on the sci-fi channel in the middle of the day at yeah. some point. It's, it's kind of something that seems ready for a sci-fi channel remake. 
Yeah, I'll, yeah, get okay. some actor from ER to play the lead. Boom. Yeah. Job done. Yeah. Dean Kane used to play Superman. He's right in yeah, line get for him that. In. Boom. What's he yeah. doing these days, by the way? <laughs> Probably. Do you know what? I bet he's still pretty well off. New Adventures of Superman must have paid a bit, and all those magazine covers, surely. <laughs> I hope so. Poor Dean Kane. <laughs> He's not, he's not been cast in Man. Maybe maybe they'll cast him for a cameo in Man of Steel. I'd I'd love it if they did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon he ever got into Smallville? He did. I've just seen it. Was he in Smallville? Yeah, but not as Superman. He was in as, as well, a character yeah. called Dirt Doctor Curtis Knox. Oh, I like that. A little nod to someone else who's been Superman before. That's nice. I, I like, like that. That's kind of thing. Smallville. They have Christopher Reeves in it as well. And, um, yeah, what's the, the Terry, Lois Lane? Terry Hatcher. Oh, original Lois Lane. Oh. Yeah. And, nice. what, uh, and there's another one, Lana, uh, from Superman 3, is, okay. is Clark's mom. Oh, I bet, I bet they never got Terrence Stamp in, though. Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, do you want to go on to yeah. review what you were Okay, so yeah, I, my, mine was one that someone said, please, can you review? Um, and on the Football 365 forum, it's uh, Love Child of Metzelda, who I have reported to social services. Um, and hopefully he's being committed as we speak, but because this film messed with my head horribly. Um, he asked me if I would watch Rampage, the 2010 film directed by uh, the master of cinema, Uwe Boll who uh, did the Alone in the Dark films, is widely regarded to be the worst director working in Hollywood today. Uh, I looked at it and thought I'd rather watch a film by Uwe Rosler. I really would. But um, but that said, I'll, I'll give it a chance. It's the weirdest thing. Okay, quick setup is, and this is weird, this is another one of those films where it shows you pretty much the end and then says two days earlier. Um, so there's a, there's a young man um, right at the beginning who is uh, burning a load of clothes in a oil drum, um, basically disposing of evidence. And then it says two days earlier, and that, that young man is a young man called Bill. Right at the beginning, he's this teen. That Well, he's, I think he might be early 20s, actually. His parents are asking him to move out because, do you know what? Stop sponging off your parents, for God's sake. Get a job, get a life, move on. And he's talking about going to college and stuff like that. I'll be honest, I've had no sympathy for him whatsoever. Goes to a coffee shop. And they're, they're, it builds into this almost slight kind of um, the young person's guide to falling down almost. Someone doesn't serve him the right coffee. And he's got every right to complain. And the coffee guy's a dick. But you think, you know, get over yourself. What um, kind of coffee did he, he didn't order some kind of, it was a macchiato. with a twist and a... It was like a macchiato, something macchiato. He, he didn't just ask for a coffee. He asked for... He was complaining about too much foam in his macchiato. No, not enough foam, too much milk. That was it. Um, I don't like him already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Basically, the idea... Um, quite quickly, within about half an hour, to me, at the time, almost out of nowhere... Oh, wait, hang on. He's putting on a suit of Kevlar. Oh, he's going on a shooting rampage. Brilliant. Um, this is really, it's very, very documentary kind of handheld camera almost. It's very, very realistically shot. Um, and a lot of it you're seeing through the eyes, basically through the eyes of someone on a classic American shooting rampage. It's very difficult to watch, as you can imagine. Um, there's some flashbacks or flash forwards. You can't tell quite what's going on. He keeps like thinking of the shooting happening before it happens. 
um, which is a bit weird. He's also got a mate, uh, um, oh, his mate's called Evan, um, and he's going on about how oh, he's just one of those hippie dicks, basically. And I did think at one point, do you know what, if you just go and shoot Evan, I'm happy. I'm happy with this. Um, but it, it's just really, once it gets into the shooting bit, part of me is thinking, this is just like watching someone play Grand Theft Auto. You know, have you two played Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And you know, like, once you've played the game properly, you then just start, like, picking up loads of weapons and killing random innocent bystanders. Yeah, it's not just me. Yeah? No, just that's check. just you. you you've oh, the only <laughs> one ever. <laughs> yeah, you get the cheats, you get all the... Yeah weapons and a tank and then you just go around destroying things until you get killed or called by the police right okay this was like imagine you went around to your mates and he said watch me do this for an hour for the first five or ten minutes you think oh yeah this is quite interesting funny and then you just think oh god boring there's elements you actually watch him mow down innocent people properly in cold blood um like come back and kill 20 women in cold blood and i'm watching thinking this is one of the most sickening things i've ever and it's not because there's loads of blood or anything it's because it's literally put you in the shoes of someone who would do this and it made me feel so uncomfortable um and it's almost the pornography of violence basically and i was thinking how how a how is this meant to be enjoyable um and b who who the hell thought this up and why are they still on the streets why aren't they locked away uh, and and then the thing that really got to me about halfway through is there was no sense of humor. I, I could see no sense of humor even with it. It was just really straight and deadpan. Um, unlike say Man Bites Dog or God Bless America, there he wasn't even an anti-hero. He was just a dick killing people. Um, and then actually there was quite a funny scene where he went to the bingo and he sat down and had a drink, took off his mask, uh, and the guy like didn't charge him for the drinks because he was really scared because it's a man in a Kevlar suit holding a load of guns going in and just ordering a drink. I thought that bit was actually quite funny. And then I, I won't go too much into the finale, but there is a twist and it does draw you in a little bit and you and you end up thinking, oh Christ, what the hell happened there at the end? I, like I said, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone, but I immediately went on to uh, Internet Movie Database. Uh, I always score my films on there after I've watched them. I gave it three out of 10 because it made me feel physically sick watching it. Although I could see there was some merit, but three times since I've watched it in less than a week, I've gone back up onto internet movie database and bumped it up by a score. A, because I thought the ending actually, when, if you can make it to the end, loads of the stuff earlier makes sense, but while you're watching, you just feel physically sick. Um, but I don't think I could ever watch it again. I have to I think it is probably Uwe Boll's best ever film. It I really admire the fact that it, you know, no uh, pun completely intended, solid. It sticks to its guns, okay? It um it is unashamedly honest in the way it is portraying this massacre. My only question is I don't know if I can watch a film about stuff like that because it it was very Quite, it was quite upsetting, um, and it made me feel physically sick. And and because this kind of thing does happen, and it, I don't, I'm not a liberal. I, I, I am a liberal. I'm not someone who believes in censorship. But I did question. I did think: does did this film actually need to be made? Um, do we need to see inside the mind of someone like that? Because it's horrible. 
Um, so yeah, I, I'm really pleased that Love Child of Metzelda recommended it. Um, it was a, there's some fantastically shot, uh, fantastically interestingly shot bits of the film. Um, it, it, and maybe my problem is it does the job too well and it puts you in that person's shoes too well. Uh, I certainly could never watch it again, and I couldn't recommend it to anyone. However, if you do want to watch it, just be warned. It's it's one of the most difficult films I've ever had to watch. Um, and I do think it it's more... I imagine this is more difficult than watching a lot of films like Human uh, Centipede, uh, a Serbian film. I, I know that they are absolutely horrific, but just this really struck a horrible nerve with me. Well, it definitely seems more interesting to watch than something like Alone in the Dark, because uh, it seems like he's actually trying to do something and, and make a statement rather than making just definitely. a shit film and being complete denial about all the criticism of it. It, it's, it's definitely a film with something to say. I'm not sure I agree with what it has to say. Um, but no, it's it's an honest... It's a, it, it is, it's a provocative film in the way that films are meant to be provocative. Um, it's not it's not doing things just to shock. There is some bits in there which are there to shock, but the fact is, this is a real character. Unfortunately, we've seen this just very recently. And maybe uh, the Denver shootings um, on the uh, Dark Knight Rises opening night, maybe the fact that they were so recent and I'd read about them affected the way I watched this film. Uh, even more, I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, watch something else immediately afterwards, which is going to cheer you. I, th- I watched Monsters Inc. after this, I was a lot happier. Then. Oh, uh... yeah. <laughs> On that note, yeah. <laughs> On that note, shall yeah. we? Shall we review Vertigo? <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, do you want to introduce the film for us? Um, okay, so yeah, very briefly, um, Vertigo obviously is uh, the Hitchcock classic, uh, starring James Stewart, starring Kim Novak. Um, it's recently been voted by Sight and Sounds critics the best film ever made. It's been hanging around uh, the top three or so for the last 30 years there. Um, but it's finally made its way up to number one. So it was recommended that we should watch it. And we decided to give it a go. Um, yeah, what what did you guys think? Um, well, first, should we just say that we're not going to do a spoiler alert on it because it's, yes. it's it's been out for about fifty years, so you haven't seen it now. Then, wow, yeah, fifty-four <laughs> years to be precise. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a a good film. It didn't drag on too long, but it was, you know, I suppose a good good film involving somebody who. Offering, uh, obviously suffering a couple of different mental illnesses or inflictions. Um, I suppose it's a psychological thriller, I suppose. Yeah. It, it, it's, I thought it, it's very Hitchcock. You know, you can tell it's a Hitchcock film and not just from the casting or from the uh, Bernard Herrmann score. Um, but at the same time, there's again i wrote down it does feel a bit like a french film at times it does feel very european it feels very personal i thought um it's quite interesting that hitchcock got to make this film you know as part of the studio system because it is in a lot of ways it's 
it's very esoteric. It is almost dreamlike in places. And in that way, it's unlike a lot of his other films that he made. Uh, and unlike pretty much any film that was out around that time. And I was thinking earlier, um, one of the kind of modern comparisons would be the fact that Christopher Nolan got to make um, The Prestige and Inception while he was doing the Batman films. You know, it the, here was a director being allowed to make very much his own film, very much his own personal vision of a film, regardless of how well it was going to do at the, uh, the box office. I mean, yeah, I, uh, just to go back to your point as well about it feeling like a very Hitchcock film, it definitely has that style to it. There's some of the shots where, um, particularly, I mean, each of Hitchcock's films, they've always got at least, well, from the ones I've seen, at least one very memorable scene in it and a very mm-hmm. memorable shot. And I think Vertigo, Vertigo's, the, the terror scene where he's chasing her up the terror, and he sort of looks down terror and the camera sort of zooms in and out again. It's got kind of, you know, someone suffering from vertigo and looking, looking down that town. Yeah. I think it, it, that's the kind of thing that Hitchcock does fantastically well. The other thing that he yeah. does really well in this as well, I think, is James Stewart's character as he sort of gradually descends into madness through this obsession and, and love. It's, it's really developed just fantastically well yeah. by Hitchcock. Like, like no other director could do, I don't think. Yeah, and it, it's one of those great partnerships of that time uh, as well. Hitchcock mm. directing Jimmy Stewart um, it is absolutely fantastic. It's quite, uh, yeah, his descent into paranoia is, is incredible, yeah. and he does really do that really well. Really interesting. This was a box office flop when it was released. Like, pretty, it seems to be whenever we talk about a great film of the past, it seems it did terribly at the box office kind of thing. I think the one it took over from, Citizen Kane, also box office flop at the time, now widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made as well. Do you think um, any films that have been and, flopped in the last five years are going to be Miami Heat 4 oh, yeah, or whatever? Maybe, is that going to be remembered yeah, as a great... John Carter of Mars, yeah. maybe that will be... Uh... Yeah, Michael, Michael Bay's Transformers... <laughs> Yeah, panned by critics, uh, they'll change their mind. 50 years' time, Um, we'll be doing this podcast and we'll be talking about sight and sound saying Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon, is the best film ever made. And that'll be when I end it all, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Interestingly, though, Hitchcock blamed the fact at the time, blamed the fact that Jimmy Stewart looked too old and he never worked with Jimmy Stewart again after Vertigo. Seems a bit harsh considering he cast him. Uh, it just feels a little bit. Uh, I, I don't. Th- Jimmy Stewart does look a bit old in this. He does uh, look a lot older than sort of the the leading women that he's meant to be playing. Jim Novak, yeah, yeah. But I think you got away with that a little bit more back then, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, my only my only real issue there is that I love Jimmy Stewart. I hate it when Jimmy Stewart goes back. <laughs> Because I love him so much. And so his descent into madness, again, it's quite upsetting to me because this this is Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, at the beginning when he's all laid up with injury and he's, which is almost identical in a way to Rear Window. Uh, this is my second favourite Hitchcock film where Jimmy Stewart is laid up with injury at the beginning of the film. Um, but, this uh he he's he's just got such a beautiful sense of humor he's got lovely timing um and and he does give this great performance 
interestingly, I because I must have seen this about 10 years ago before I watched it again this week, I'd forgotten that for about 20 minutes near the beginning of the film, we're almost watching a silent film, um, when he's tailing uh, Kim Novak's character, um, and he's going around different... It's really interesting that he went that long without any dialogue. Um, again, quite brave choices in this film, which I think is probably why it's unofficially... Well, officially now, I suppose the critic's favourite Hitchcock film ever. And uh, um, it is very artistic in places. It's quite reminiscent of silent cinema. There's a lot of interesting and brave camera shots and things like that. Um, I, I can't remember who it, which film director it was now, which is really annoying me, and that's terrible. I should have done my research better. Um, but they said that the first half of this film is Hitchcock at his absolute best, and the second half is Hitchcock at possibly his worst, which I thought was quite an interesting view of the film because it is definitely a film of two halves. And uh, I think I stopped it to go and make a cup of tea at uh, literally the half-time point. And there was a bit which felt, right, this is half-time. It's the bit where they kiss, um, kind of like she's near the sea and he stops her going in and they kiss on the clifftops kind of thing. I was like, okay, it feels like half-time now. I'll go and make a cup of tea. Um, And it, it, it is really nicely set up. And I think the second half is... And a lot of people have thrown this criticism at Hitchcock, especially considering he's the master of suspense and everything, that he doesn't know how to tie up a film very well. And it always seems like he builds up and then just rushes the last 10 minutes. I personally don't wholeheartedly agree with that, but I can see where people are coming from when they level that criticism out. I did think the ending to this, to Vertigo, Mm. did seem a bit... Not the whole ending, but just sort of the final couple of scenes where the nun scared her enough, Julie, enough to make her fall to her death. just seemed a bit silly. Yeah, I I felt the same way, Steve. Um, It's just, you know, so much tension is built up into that final few moments. Mm. And then just something stupid like that to to finish it off was, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I just personally think it kind of ruined the film a little bit. I wouldn't go as far as saying it ruined it but it's certainly just sort of you think surely it could have been a better ending than that because that's just a bit dark yeah and i and, and i i love the the fact that I, I personally love the fact that she died at the end he went through all that and then she still died uh it, it's massively horribly dark uh, mm. but you're right the fact that a nun scared her <laughs> so yeah, there's so, so much better ways to have done it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it reminds me of North. But I remember watching the end of North by Northwest and going, "Oh, what? oh, 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 that's the end." Oh, <laughs> kind of thing. And there is a. I don't think it's like that with all of his films. Although he does, he doesn't mess around. I'll, I'll give him that. He, you know, you're not going to get a Lord of the Rings style half an hour of goodbyes and stuff like that in a Hitchcock film. It, when Hitchcock decides that right here's the end of the film, it it is pretty much. But um, there's the end. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I watched um, Rear Window for the first time this week as well, oh. and uh, it's the final ten minutes. Well, perhaps maybe the final fifteen minutes are the mm. best part of that film. I think. Yeah. Oppositely to Vertigo, I mean, I like the second half of Vertigo more, but mm. the final sort of moments of that film, I think, kind of. Well, it, it's just a bit of. Well, is that it? Is that how you've ended it? Oh. Yeah. Well, next film then. But, you know, with Rear Window, it's that final 10 minutes that really sort of drive this this whole film to a close. And uh, I kind of think, well, why couldn't he have done that with Vertigo? Why, yeah. why is 
And I think I think with Vertigo, it's I th- I think Vertigo is more of a character study, um, which is why again it's one of the bits that do make it stand out a little bit more from Hitchcock's other films. It's less about the plot and more about James Stewart's uh, Scotty's character here. Whereas I think a lot of his other films, sometimes the character falls by the wayside to drive the plot forward. Um, and definitely, and definitely in that first hour, I really get the sense that this is a character piece, um, which is probably why it, it feels a little bit different in that sense. Um, but yeah, you're right. No, Rear Window it is my favourite Hitchcock film. I think Rear Window, possibly with Rope, uh, but Rear Window, I think edges it. Um, and I think it does almost everything better than Vertigo. And it's not to say Vertigo is a bad film. I think Vertigo is a great film. I don't think it's, like Steve said beforehand, I don't think it's the best film ever made, but I can see why critics love it. And yeah. that is why well, I'm I a mean... failed critic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is a very well-made film. Um, it, it, like you say, because it, it, it just has so many different themes running through it. Um, and, you know, I, I know you mentioned it sort of focuses on, on James Stewart's character and, and that's the one that's developed the most, but you know, everyone represents something in this film. You can get something out of every character. As minor a role as some of them play, mm. everyone brings something to the film. Yeah. Um, it's just the way that it's all tied together that I wasn't completely satisfied by. Mm. I think maybe on reflection as well, it's one of these kind of films, the more that you see it, perhaps the more you'll get out of it. So um, like, I, as it was the first time I saw it, I kind of felt afterwards that, yeah, you know, it's a very good film. I, I quite like the way that it's been put together, uh, mostly. Mm. I quite like these characters, and there's lots of things that you, you make afterwards, you're thinking about the film, you go, oh, yeah, that's that's what that meant. But maybe it's one of these ones, you just think, well, perhaps the next time I see it, I'll pick up on stuff that I didn't the first time I watched it, and then you gradually maybe might understand why it's held in such high regard over something like Rear Window or Dial M for Murder, which is probably my yeah. favourite Hitchcock film. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, I do, every time I watch it, I, I kind of turn it off and think, oh, that was a decent film. But I do end up thinking about it over the next few days, which yeah. I don't get with every film I watch by any stretch of the imagination. So it definitely, I think it gets under your skin. Mm. And I think you're right. I think the more you see it, the more that will happen. And quite possibly a lot of these critics that were, uh, you know, asked by Sight and Sound for their views, they will have seen it quite a lot. Um, They will have quite possibly talked about, you know, a lot, if any of them have got a film studies background, they will have talked about it and just dissected it. And I think, I think definitely with Vertigo, the more you look into it, the more you will get from it. Um, And so it it almost, it almost becomes like a work of art. Um, like, Like some of these, really highly revered films that become so dissected it's almost impossible to sit there and try and just say well how do you think about it just as like a film though just as a movie experience uh because it has all this baggage with it all this critical baggage that you know you're meant to like it and things like that i don't know how much that affects a lot of other people um but yeah you're as as just a, a film sitting down watching a psychological horror, uh, psychological thriller. It's a very good one. Yeah, that that yeah. would be how I would see it. Um, but the, yeah, they're clearly 
the more you watch it, the more you dig into it, the more you can mm. get from it. But some people just haven't got time to do that. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I did go into it expecting to just love it straight away. And I was kind of a little bit disappointed that I, did, I didn't get that feeling from it. But maybe that's just because I, I overhyped it to myself. And, you know, someone on, um, I posted my review on Letterboxd, the website yeah. for film reviews, and someone called Hot Donkey Bear replied <laughs> and said uh, that it's definitely not his favourite Hitchcock film. Um, and he knows what I mean about disappointment. And the way people go on it, on about it, he said, I was expecting the cinematic version of a blowjob, which I thought was quite a nice comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, I, you know, it kind of sums up what I was expecting from it as well, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, to, to just be absolutely amazed by something, to be so blown away by a film that, you know, is, everyone tells you it's just this, this great film and, you know, getting voted the best film ever and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, but it just disappointed me a little bit. It's a good film. I did like it. I just wanted more from it. I wanted to come away from it thinking, well, uh, that's brilliant. Now I can look at all these other films in a completely different light and it's going to change the way that I watch films mm. for the rest of my life. But, um, yeah, maybe that was just me hoping for too much from it. <laughs> but the, the great thing about Hitchcock films is as well, you can't talk to anybody about Hitchcock without people telling you what their favourite film is and everyone's got a different opinion and I think Vertigo is another one of these where as soon as you start talking about it with anybody everyone's got something different to tell you and you know maybe that's why it's it's also revered so much everyone's got planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. own opinion on it and what this different part means and stuff, so... Yeah, and uh, it, uh, I've actually been thinking in the last week. I thought we should really do a hit at some point. We'll do a Hitchcock special, and we'll just talk about Hitchcock for a, an episode. Um, because yeah, the the fact is, the man is a master of making films, and uh, and the fact that we're even going Hitchcock uh, Vertigo is not our favourite Hitchcock film. That's just a mark of how great a filmmaker he was. Absolutely. I mean. Um... <laughs> Dial M for Murder, as I said, is probably my favourite. Psycho as well, just these fantastic yeah. films. You look at his, you know, filmography. It's just astonishing that someone made yeah. so not just so many films, but so many amazing films. Yeah, so many brilliant, brilliant films, definitely. Oh, I suppose that's all for um, failed listeners. I hope you've enjoyed it because it's probably something we'll do again somewhere down the line. Oh, yeah. Uh, James, before we finish up, do you want to just tell everyone where they can find the website and things? Yes. Okay, so um, find us at failedcritics.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritic or go to our Twitter handle, which is at failedcritics. And on there, um, we'll tweet about the films we're watching, but we also tell you every day the best film that's on television. So that's a good one to follow as well. Excellent. And the next 
podcast out will be uh, Triple Bill, since we've split those into two. That's right, and in the next review, we will be reviewing The Born Legacy. soundtrack hasn't it, it? Has, yeah. it's pervasive throughout the whole <laughs> film but it it's really it's, i don't drive to it i've made that mistake before you know driven around to the run loader on soundtrack and <laughs> you, you suddenly look at your speed i think well hang on um but yeah it, it it's a bit like possibly a film that we're going to talk about later uh the the soundtrack is almost a character in the film it, yeah. it's it, you you always are very aware of it but it's not distracting. It's just, it's a, it's an integral part of the film, I think. Yes, and it was also written by Tom Twyker as well. So uh, in a John Carpenter-esque move, he was involved in the soundtrack as well as filming the film. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I think Frank Tenter sings on one of the tracks as well. <laughs> really? It's very, very homemade, yeah, in a way. Wow. Now that just makes it better, though, doesn't it? It was, yeah, like, it was I... a relatively small budget. And to get all the stuff into it that they did... 
you know, some of the camera angles that they use it are, are brilliant. I mean, as I said, I, I, you appreciate the way they've, they've told the story, but one of the ways that it is told is through this brilliant use of camera angles. So, like, the, the shots as she's running through the to the streets and it's sort of above her and then behind and it sort of flashes to like over her shoulder and stuff. It's brilliant and it kind of builds up this very, very quick pace. Um, yes. And the mix of animation into it as well. It really works. Yeah, it's really nice, isn't it? It, it feels very European in a sense, but yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other bits, one of the other lovely little motifs I like is the people that she runs past each time. Yeah. Um, and then you see a series of like Polaroid photos quickly flicking yeah. through them, showing the rest of their life kind of thing. And again, each time that's a bit different. And there's there's little stories in there as well, little vignettes of everyone's life uh, being slightly different each time. It's that's really really nice as well. I think I said, I think I said on uh, one of the, I think it was on the Football Three Six Five forum. Um, this film got me as excited about cinema when I saw it in the early 2000s as Reservoir Dogs did when I first saw that when I was about 16 kind of thing. Not necessarily because it's the best thing, I, but because I'd never seen anything quite like it before. Uh, and yeah, it's, it does, it it's, very, unique. it's very cinematic in that sense and that it feels like the kind of story that cinema can tell uh, and, and only cinema can tell this could only be a film. This wouldn't work as a book or it wouldn't work as a play. You know, it, it would only work as a piece of film. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Um, and of course, Tom Twyker is the director of the new Cloud Atlas, which we spoke briefly about the trailer last week, which yeah. I saw whatever five minutes is and still have absolutely no idea what the hell's going on with that. So, but I'm, <laughs> I'm quite excited to see what happens. I think he also did a film called Heaven with um, Kate Blanchett and Giovanna Ribisi. Uh, it was an an Italian film not long after this as well. He's, it, he's got a, quite an interesting filmography that I definitely suggest having a look at at some point. Yeah, I need to look more into it because, uh, uh, into his um, background, really, because I just went into this film not knowing much about it other than that you've raved about it quite a lot. So I was quite excited yeah. to watch it. Um, I'm glad you, you enjoyed I mean, it, though, yeah. Yeah, I did. I did enjoy it. I wouldn't say it had the same effect on me as it seems to have had on you. Um, mm. not I was at a very impressionable time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's quite short well, as your... well, and yeah, you know, which as you no know, excuse I... for people not to watch it. Mate. I love a film that's only seventy odd minutes long. Yeah. Um, my my one issue was that Manny did seem to be a bit of a dick, and I didn't have a lot of sympathy for him. He seems like a he he does grow as a character throughout the film, but for the first half, you think, oh, for God's sake, just grow up, grow a pair. Yeah, he's getting <laughs> his girlfriend to sort out all his problems and stuff. And you know, yeah, she could do a lot better. But um, he also looks bizarrely like um, former Leicester City striker Jamie Scowcroft as well, which did put me off the first time I watched it. But that's another issue. <laughs> Well, that's a, yeah, okay. That's not going to be the same issue for everybody, I'm sure. No, no, exactly. I, I do realise that's, that's quite a specific <laughs> criticism. Yeah, but it was a great recommendation, um, and I'd recommend it as well. Well, I picked out of the list that was left of films that had been recommended or chosen for us by various people, a post-apocalyptic film, well... I suppose it's not really post-apocalyptic, it's more kind of on the way to apocalyptic film. The Day the Earth Caught Fire, uh, from 1961, starring a load of people that I'd not heard of. I'm not selling this film very well, but it is, it is actually quite good. 
Uh, starring Edward Judd, Leo McKern, Janet Monroe. I've not heard of these people. I don't know if any of you guys have. No, not any no. bells. <laughs> and the film, like a lot of post-apocalyptic films, even right to the modern day with the John Cusack terrible blockbuster 2012, um, there is some very dubious science going on. <laughs> Which I'll come to later. But the main characters, basically, uh, there's a guy called Peter Stenning. And he's a promising journalist, but he's got divorced. So he's sort of, and he, you know, his life's a bit crap. And the editor's given him really terrible jobs to, and stories to cover. But his friend's sort of like a much better reporter who tries to help him out. Um, but this is where the dodgy science comes in. The Soviet Union and the United States have been testing nuclear bombs and because of this or co well yes because of this there's some strange sort of weather affecting the globe so they send Stenning down to the Met Office to try and get find out what's going on um, and this is where this is the really dubious science these nuclear weapons tests have knocked the earth out of orbit and it's moving closer to the sun oh <gasps> Right. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. I mean, there's been lots of nuclear weapons <laughs> tests, and we're not getting any closer to the sun. So, <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's a fear, though. I'm, I'm now wor- I've never been worried about that before, but now I am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just quite a strange bit of science. Like the neutrinos mutating in 2012. Oh, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the government start rationing, um, you know, everything. Um, but the scientists have got an answer. If they detonate a load of nuclear bombs in Western Siberia, the Earth will start going back in the other direction. <laughs> wow. <coughs> it's it's um, schoolyard science. I like it. It, it. it was the first thing I thought, actually, was to blow it back the other way. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't regardless quite, of which country takes the hit. I don't quite know how detonating it, you know, did they, did they detonate the test at the complete opposite end of the Earth to Siberia? In that case, you know, this is set in the Cold War, so America and the USSR aren't going to be doing that in the same place. It's, you know, they've not thought it through, have they, Steve? No, they haven't thought the plot through. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, the film ends on an ambiguous note because um, basically, you don't find out if it worked or not. Um, <laughs> there's two versions of the newspaper being printed: one saying "world saved," one saying "world doomed." <gasps> and you know, and you just see sort of that. Then the people at the printing press is waiting for Stenning, who because he broke the story, he gets to choose which one to run with. Not actually the situation <laughs> happening dictates it, but what Stenning says, and then it ends with sort of church bells. So it's kind of like the end of War of the Worlds, ambiguous, but sort of trying to give you hope. But that doesn't make sense when you see the beginning of it, when it's just some bloke walking down London and it's roasting hot, and you know it's deserted. So, right. What so, was, was it any good, again? Steve? <laughs> it was from 1961. 61. So it's kind of at the end of that black and white um, sci-fi film mm. period, okay? I mean, and at the height of Cold War paranoia. Well, basically, this, yeah. this opening scene where you, this the guy is meant to be walking down the deserted streets of London, 
and the Earth's mm-hmm. getting closer to the sun. To make it look hot, they just orange up the screen a bit. Nice. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it, it is quite enjoyable in a in a stupid, rather kind of way because, like I said, the science is ridiculous. And then I don't get the ambiguous ending when the opening scene suggests that everything's gone to pot. Right, I see, yeah. Oh, so is the beginning bit, then it, does it go back and well, is it kind of like, here's, here's the yeah. film, oh, this is what happened yeah. op- like three months the earlier. O- the opening is scene is some guy walking through London, it's deserted, and the orange screen implies yeah. that the Earth is incredibly close it's to the sun. It's literally catching fire. But then it, yeah, then it goes back a few months. I see. But then the right. ending's ambiguous, so... You don't so they've of... kind of forgotten that they gave an. They've forgot... it... their ambiguous ending. They forgot that they've actually already it, it told. It seems you that, the that earth's way. To I mean, even sun, even right. though in the film, like the big cities are evacuated, there must still be people there because that these guys are working for the Daily Express, which is based in London. So London's not going to be completely deserted, but the opening scene is. So it doesn't kind of. Yeah. It doesn't. Mm. The beginning and end doesn't kind of tally up unless I'm missing something really obvious. I see. But it, it is it is a fun watch. In a bit of a silly way. I mean, I don't think it's meant to be taken too seriously. Yeah. Um, okay. It's, well, it's maybe just, I'll watch it if it's ever on TV. I won't go I, out of my way to watch I it. I can't though. ever see it being on TV, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> I bet it's on the sci-fi channel in the middle of the day at yeah. some point. It's, it's kind of something that seems ready for a sci-fi channel remake. Yeah, I'll, yeah get oh, okay. some actor from ER to play the lead. Boom. Yeah. Job yeah. done. Yeah. Dean Kane, who used to play Superman, he's right in yeah, line for that. What's he yeah. doing these days, by the way? <laughs> Probably. Do you know what? I bet he's still pretty well off. New Adventures of Superman must have paid a bit, and all those magazine covers, surely. <laughs> I hope so. Poor Dean Kane. He's not, he's not been cast in Man. Maybe, maybe they'll cast him for a cameo in Man of Steel. I'd, I'd love it if they did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon he ever got into Smallville? He did. I've just seen it. Was he in Smallville? <laughs> yeah, but not as Superman. He was in as, as well, a character yeah. called Dirt Dr. Curtis Knox. Oh, oh, I like that. A little nod to someone else who's been Superman before. That's nice. I, I like, like that. That's that Smallville. They have Christopher Reeves in it as well. And, um, yeah, what's the, the Terry, Lois Lane? Terry he Hatcher. Did, oh, original Lois Lane. Oh, yeah. that's and, nice. what, uh, and there's another one, Lana, uh, from Superman... Three is, okay. is Clark's mum in Smallville. Oh, I bet I bet they never got Terrence Stamp in though. Bastards. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> uh, James, do you want to go on to review what you were? Okay, so yeah, I, my mine was one that someone said, "Please, can you review?" Um, and on the football three six five forum, it's uh, "Love Child of Met Zelda," who I have reported to social services, um, and hopefully he's being committed as we speak, but because this film messed with my head horribly. Um, he asked me if I would watch Rampage, the 2010 film directed by uh, the master of cinema, Uwe Boll, who uh, did the Alone in the Dark films, is widely regarded to be the worst director working in Hollywood today. Uh, I looked at it and thought I'd rather watch a film by Uwe Rosler. I really would. But um, but that said, I'll, I'll give it a chance. It's the weirdest thing. Okay, quick setup is, and this is weird. This is another one of those films where it shows you pretty much the end and then says two days earlier. Um, so there's a, there's a young man, um, right at the beginning who is, uh, burning a load of clothes in a oil drum, um, basically disposing of evidence. And then it says two days earlier. And that, that young man is a young man called Bill. Right at the beginning, 
he's this teen that well he's i think he might be early 20s actually his parents are asking him to move out because do you know what stop sponging off your parents for god's sake get a job get a life move on and he's talking about going to college and stuff like that i'll be honest i've had no sympathy for him whatsoever goes to a coffee shop and they, they, it builds into this almost slight kind of um the young person's guide to falling down almost someone doesn't serve him the right coffee and he's got every right to complain and the coffee guy's a dick but you think you know get over yourself what um, kind of coffee did he he didn't order some kind of it was a macchiato. with a twist and a... It was like a macchiato, something macchiato. He, he didn't just ask for a coffee. He asked for... He was complaining about too much foam in his macchiato. No, not enough foam, too much milk. That was it. Um, I don't like him already. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Basically, the idea... Um, quite quickly, within about half an hour, to me, at the time, almost out of nowhere... Oh, wait, hang on. He's putting on a suit of Kevlar. Oh, he's going on a shooting rampage. Brilliant. Um, this is really when it's very, very documentary kind of handheld camera almost It's very, very realistically shot. Um, and a lot of it you're seeing through the eyes, basically through the eyes of someone on a classic American shooting rampage. It's very difficult to watch, as you can imagine. Um, there's some flashbacks or flash forwards. You can't tell quite what's going on. He keeps like thinking of the shooting happening before it happens, um, which is a bit weird. He's also got a mate. Uh, um, oh, his mate's called Evan. Um, and he's going on about how oh, he's just one of those hippie dicks, basically. And I did think at one point, do you know what? If you just go and shoot Evan, I'm happy. I'm happy with this. Um but it, it's just really, once it gets into the shooting bit, part of me is thinking, this is just like watching someone play Grand Theft Auto. You know, have you two played Grand Theft Auto? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And you know, like, once you've played the game properly, you then just start, like, picking up loads of weapons and killing random innocent bystanders. Yeah, it's not just me. Yeah? No, just that's check. just you. You're, you've oh, got you're the really. only one ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get the cheats. You get all the... Yeah weapons and a tank and then you just go around destroying things until you get killed or called by the police right okay this was like imagine you went around to your mates and he said watch me do this for an hour for the first five or ten minutes you think oh yeah this is quite interesting funny and then you just think oh god boring there's elements you actually watch him mow down innocent pit properly in cold blood um like come back and kill 20 women in cold blood and i'm watching thinking this is one of the most sickening things i've ever watched. and it's not because there's loads of blood or anything it's because it's literally put you in the shoes of someone who would do this and it made me feel so uncomfortable um and it, it's almost the pornography of violence basically and i was thinking how how a how is this meant to be enjoyable um and b who who the hell thought this up and why are they still on the streets why aren't they locked away uh, and and then the thing that really got to me about halfway through is there was no sense of humor. I, I could see no sense of humor even with it. It was just really straight and deadpan. Um, unlike say Man Bites Dog or God Bless America, there he wasn't even an anti-hero. He was just a dick killing people. Um, and then actually there was quite a funny scene where he went to the bingo and he sat down and had a drink, took off his mask, uh, and the guy like didn't charge him for the drinks because he was really scared because it's a man in a Kevlar suit holding a load of guns going in and just ordering a drink. I thought that bit was actually quite funny. And then I, I won't go too much into the finale, but there is a twist and it does draw you in a little bit. And you and 
you end up thinking, oh, Christ, what the hell happened there at the end? I, like I said, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. But I immediately went on to uh, Internet Movie Database. I, I always score my films on there after I've watched them. I gave it three out of ten because it made me feel physically sick watching it. Although I could see there was some merit. But three times since I've watched it, in less than a week, I've gone back up onto Internet Movie Database and bumped it up by a score. A, because I thought the ending actually... When If you can make it to the end, loads of the stuff earlier makes sense. But while you're watching, you just feel physically sick. Um, but I don't think I could ever watch it again. I have to I think it is probably Uwe Boll's best ever film. It, I really admire the fact that it, you know, no uh, pun completely intended, solid. It sticks to its guns, okay? It, um... It is unashamedly honest in the way it is portraying this massacre. My only question is, I don't know if I can watch a film about stuff like that because it it was very, quite, it was quite upsetting, um, and it made me feel physically sick. And and because this kind of thing does happen and it, I don't, I'm not a liberal. I, I, I am a liberal. I'm not someone who believes in censorship, but I did question, I did think does, did this film actually need to be made? Um, do we need to see inside the mind of someone like that? Because it's horrible. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really pleased that Love Child of Met Zelda recommended it. Um, it was, a, there's some fantastically shot, uh, fantastically interestingly shot bits of the film. Um, it, it, and uh, Maybe my problem is it does the job too well and it puts you in that person's shoes too well. Uh, I certainly could never watch it again. and I couldn't recommend it to anyone. However, if you do want to watch it, just be warned. It's it's one of the most difficult films I've ever had to watch. Um, and I do think it it's more... I imagine this is more difficult than watching a lot of films like Human uh, Centipede, uh, a Serbian film. And I know that they are absolutely horrific. But just this really struck a horrible nerve with me. Well, it definitely seems more interesting to watch than something like Alone in the Dark, because uh, it seems like he's <laughs> actually trying to do something and, and make a statement rather than making just definitely. this shit it's, film and being complete denial about all the criticism of it. It's, it's definitely a film with something to say. I'm not sure I agree with what it has to say. Um, but no, it's it's an honest... It's a, it, it is, it's a provocative film in the way that films are meant to be provocative. Um, it's not it's not doing things just to shock. There is some bits in there which are there to shock, but the fact is, this is a real character. Unfortunately, we've seen this just very recently, and maybe um, the Denver shootings um, on the uh, Dark Knight Rises opening night, maybe the fact that they were so recent and I'd read about them affected the way I watched this film uh, even more. I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, watch something else immediately afterwards, which is going to cheer you. I, th- I watched Monsters, Inc. after this. I was a lot happier. Then. Oh. Uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on that note. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, shall, yeah. we, shall we review Vertigo? <laughs> Yes. Okay. Well, James, do you want to introduce <laughs> the film for us? Um, okay, so yeah, very briefly, um, Vertigo obviously is uh, the Hitchcock classic. 
uh, starring James Stewart, starring Kim Novak. Uh, it's recently been voted by Sight and Sounds critics the best film ever made. It's been hanging around uh, the top three or so for the last 30 years there, um, but it's finally made its way up to number one. So it was recommended that we should watch it, and we decided to give it a go. Um, yeah, what what did you guys think? Um, well, first, should we just say that we're not going to do a spoiler alert on it because it's, yes. it's it's been out for about 50 years, so we haven't seen it now then. Wow. Yeah, 54 <laughs> years to be precise. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a a good film. It didn't drag on too long, but it was, you know, I suppose a good good film involving somebody who was offering, uh, obviously suffering a couple of different mental illnesses or inflictions. Um, I suppose it's a psychological thriller, I suppose. Yeah, it, it it's... I thought it's very Hitchcock. You know, you can tell it's a Hitchcock film and not just from the casting or from the uh, Bernard Herrmann score. Um, But at the same time, there's... Again, I wrote down, it does feel a bit like a French film at times. It does feel very European. It feels very personal, I thought. Um, It's quite interesting that Hitchcock got to make this film, you know, as part of the studio system because it is, in a lot of ways, is it's very esoteric. It is almost dreamlike in places. And in that way, it's unlike a lot of his other films that he made. Uh, and unlike pretty much any film that was out around that time. And I was thinking earlier, um, one of the kind of modern comparisons would be the fact that Christopher Nolan got to make, um, the prestige and inception while he was doing the Batman films, you know, it the, here was a director being allowed to make very much his own film, very much his own personal vision of a film, regardless of how well it was going to do at the, uh, the box office. I mean, yeah, I, just to go back to your point as well about it feeling like a very Hitchcock film, it definitely has that style to it. There's some of the shots where, um, particularly, I mean, each of Hitchcock's films, They've always got at least, well, from the ones I've seen, at least one very memorable scene in it and a very mm-hmm. memorable shot. And I think Vertigo, Vertigo's the, the terror scene where he's chasing her up the terror and he sort of looks down the terror and the camera sort of zooms in and out again. It's got kind of, you know, someone suffering from Vertigo and looking, looking down that town. Yeah. I think it, it, that's the kind of thing that Hitchcock does fantastically well. The other thing that he yeah. does really well in this as well, I think, is James Stewart's character as he sort of gradually descends into madness through this obsession and, and love. It's, it's really developed just fantastically well yeah. by Hitchcock. Like, like no other director could do, I don't think. Yeah, and it, it's one of those great partnerships of that time uh, as well. Hitchcock mm-hmm. directing Jimmy Stewart um, it is absolutely fantastic. It's got, uh, yeah, his descent into paranoia is incredible and he does really do that really well really interesting this was a box office flop when it was released like pretty it seems to be whenever we talk about a great film of the past it seems it did terribly at the box office kind of thing i think the one it took over from citizen kane also box office flop at the time now widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made as well do you think Um, any films that have been flopped in the last five years are going to be 
Miami Heat 4 oh, yeah, or whatever, maybe, is that going to be remembered yeah, as a great... Yeah, Carter of Mars, yeah. maybe that will be... Uh... Yeah. Michael, Michael Bay's Transformers. Yeah. Panned yeah. by critics, uh, they'll change their mind. 50 years time, um, we'll be doing this podcast and we'll be talking about sight and sound saying Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon, is the best film ever made. And that'll be when I end it all, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, though, Hitchcock blamed the fact at the time, blamed the fact that Jimmy Stewart looked too old and he never worked with Jimmy Stewart again after Vertigo. Seems a bit harsh considering he cast him. Uh, it just feels a little bit. Uh, I, I don't think Jimmy Stewart does look a bit old in this. He does uh, look a lot older than sort of the the leading women that he's meant to be playing. Jim Novak, yeah. Yeah. But I think you got away with that a little bit more back then, to be honest. Um, uh, yeah, my only my only real issue there is that I love Jimmy Stewart. I hate it when Jimmy Stewart goes bad because <laughs> I love him so much. And so his descent into madness, yeah, it's quite upsetting to me because this this is Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, at the beginning when he's all laid up with injury and he's, which is almost identical in a way to Rear Window. Uh, this is my second favourite Hitchcock film where Jimmy Stewart is laid up with injury at the beginning of the film. Um, but this, uh, he, he's, he's just got such a beautiful sense of humour. He's got lovely timing. Um, and and he does give this great performance. Interestingly, I because I must have seen this about 10 years ago before I watched it again this week, I'd forgotten that for about 20 minutes near the beginning of the film, we're almost watching a silent film. Um, when he's tailing uh, Kim Novak's character um, and he's going around different... It's really interesting that he went that long without any dialogue. Um, Again, quite brave choices in this film, which I think is probably why it's unofficially... Well, officially now, I suppose, the critics' favourite Hitchcock film ever. In that um, it is very artistic in places. It's quite reminiscent of silent cinema. There's a lot of interesting and brave camera shots and things like that. Um, I, I can't remember who it, which film director it was now, which is really annoying me, and that's terrible. I should have done my research better. Um, but they said that the first half of this film is Hitchcock at his absolute best, and the second half is Hitchcock at possibly his worst, which I thought was quite an interesting view of the film, because it is definitely a film of two halves. And uh, I think I stopped it. To go and make a cup of tea or uh, literally the half time point. And there was a bit which felt, right, this is half time. It's the bit where they kiss, um, kind of like she's near the sea and he stops her going in and they kiss on the cliff tops kind of thing. I was like, okay, it feels like half time now. I'll go and make a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it is really nicely set up. And I think the second half is, and a lot of people have thrown this criticism at Hitchcock, especially considering he's the master of suspense and everything that he doesn't know how to tie up a film very well. And it always seems like he builds up and then just rushes the last 10 minutes. I personally don't wholeheartedly agree with that, but I can see where people are coming from when they level that criticism out. I, I did it. think the I ending think... to this, to Vertigo, did seem a bit, not the whole ending, but just sort of the final couple of scenes where the nun scared her enough, Judy, enough to make her fall to her death. It just seemed a bit silly. Yeah, I I felt the same way, Steve. Um, it's just, you know, so much tension is put up in, put, built up into that final few moments, mm. and then just something stupid like that to to finish it off is, uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I, 
just personally think it kind of ruined the film a little bit. I wouldn't go as far as saying it ruined it, but it certainly just sort of you think, surely it could have been a better ending than that, because that's just a bit dark. Yeah, and I, and, and I, I love the, the fact that I, I personally love the fact that she died at the end. He went through all that, and then she still died. Uh, it is massively horribly dark, uh, mm. but you're right. The fact that a nun scared her. <laughs> so yeah, there's so, fell off the so tower. much better ways to have done it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it reminds me of North. But I remember watching the end of North by Northwest and going, "Oh, oh, 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 oh that's the end." Oh, <laughs> kind of thing. And there is a. I don't think it's like that with all of his films. Although he does. He doesn't mess around. I'll, I'll give him that. He, you know, you're not going to get a Lord of the Rings style half an hour of goodbyes and stuff like that in a Hitchcock film. Hitch, when Hitchcock decides that right here's the end of the film, it it is pretty much, bam, there's the end. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I watched um, Rear Window for the first time this week as well, oh. and uh, it's the final ten minutes. Well, perhaps maybe the final fifteen minutes are the mm. best part of that film. I think. Yeah. Oppositely to Vertigo. I mean, I like the second half of Vertigo more, but mm. the final sort of moments of that film, I think, kind of. Well, it, it's just a bit of. Well, is that it? Is that how you've ended it? Oh. Yeah. Well, next film, then. But, you know, with Rear Window, it's that final 10 minutes that really sort of drive this this whole film to a close. And uh, I kind of think, well, why couldn't he have done that with Vertigo? Why? Yeah. why... And I think, I think with Vertigo. It's. I, th- I think Vertigo is more of a character study, um, which is why, again, it's one of the bits that do make it stand out a little bit more from Hitchcock's other films. It's less about the plot and more about James Stewart's, uh, Scotty's character here, whereas I think a lot of his other films, sometimes the character falls by the wayside to drive the plot forward. Um, yeah. And definitely, And definitely in that first hour, I really get the sense that this is a character piece, um, which is probably why it, it feels a little bit different in that sense. Um, but yeah, you're right. No, Rear Window it is my favourite Hitchcock film. I think Rear Window, possibly with Rope, uh, but Rear Window, I think, edges it. Um, and I think it does almost everything better than Vertigo. And it's not to say Vertigo is a bad film. I think Vertigo is a great film. I don't think it's like Steve said beforehand, I don't think it's the best film ever made, but I can see why critics love it. And yeah. that is why well, I'm I mean, a failed critic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is a very well-made film. Um, it, like you say, because it, it, it just has so many different themes running through it. And, and you know, I, I know you mentioned it sort of focuses on, on James Stewart's character and, and that's the one that's developed the most, but, you know, everyone represents something in this film. You can get something out of every character. As minor a role as some of them play, mm. everyone brings something to the film. Yeah. Um, it's just the way that it's all tied together that I wasn't completely satisfied by. Mm. I think maybe on reflection as well, it's one of these kind of films, the more that you see it, perhaps the more you'll get out of it. So um, like, I, as it was the first time I saw it, I kind of felt afterwards that, yeah, you know, it's a very good film. I, I quite like the way that it's been put together, uh, mostly. Mm. I quite like these characters, and there's, there's lots of things that you, you went afterwards, you're thinking about the film, you go, oh, yeah, that's that's what that meant. But maybe it's one of these ones, you just think, well, perhaps the next time I see it, I'll pick up on stuff that I didn't the first time I watched it, and then you gradually maybe might understand 
why it's held in such high regard over something like Rear Window or Dialemple Murder, which is probably my yeah. favourite Hitchcock film. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, I do, every time I watch it, I, I kind of turn it off and think, oh, that was a decent film. But I do end up thinking about it over the next few days, which yeah. I don't get with every film I watch by any stretch of the imagination. So it definitely, I think it gets under your skin. And mm. I think you're right. I think the more you see it, the more that will happen. And quite possibly a lot of these critics that were, uh, you know, asked by Sight and Sound for their views, they will have seen it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, they will have quite possibly talked about, you know, a lot. If any of them have got a film studies background, they will have talked about it and just dissected it. And I think, I think, definitely with Vertigo, the more you look into it, the more you will get from it. Um, and so, it, it, it almost, it almost becomes like a work of art, um, like like some of these really highly revered films that become so dissected. It's almost impossible to sit there and try and just say, well, how do you think about it just as like a film, though, just as a movie experience? Uh, because it has all this baggage with it, all this critical baggage that you know you're meant to like it and things like that. I don't know how much that affects a lot of other people. Um, but, yeah, you're as as just a, a film sitting down watching a psychological horror, uh, psychological thriller, it's a very good one. Yeah, that, that yeah. would be how I would see it. Um, but the, yeah, they're clearly the more you watch it, the more you dig into it, the more you can mm. get from it. But some people just haven't got time to do that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I did go into it expecting to just love it straight away, and I was kind of a little bit disappointed that I did I didn't get that feeling from it. But maybe that's just because I, I overhyped it to myself. And you know, someone on um, I posted my review on Letterbox the website yeah. for film reviews, and someone called Hot Donkey Bear replied <laughs> and said. Uh, it's definitely not his favourite Hitchcock film, um, and he knows what I mean about disappointment. And the way people go on it, on about it, he said I was expecting the cinematic version of a blowjob, which I thought was quite a nice comment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, it kind of sums up what I was expecting from it as well, I guess. Mm. Um, you know, to, to just be absolutely amazed by something, to be so blown away by a film that you know everyone tells you is just this, this great film, and you know, getting voted the best film ever and stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again, but it just disappointed me a little bit. It's a good film. I did like it. I just wanted more from it. I wanted to come away from it thinking, well, uh, that's brilliant. Now I can look at all these other films in a completely different light. and It's going to change the way that I watch films mm. for the rest of my life. But, um, yeah, maybe that was just me hoping for too much from it. <laughs> but the, the great thing about Hitchcock films is, as well, you can't talk to anybody about Hitchcock without people telling you what their favourite film is and everyone's got a different opinion. And I think Vertigo is another one of these where as soon as you start talking about it with anybody, everyone's got something different to tell you. And, you know, maybe that's why it's it's also revered so much. Everyone's yeah. got their own opinion on it and what this different part yeah. means and stuff. So, Yeah, and uh, it, I've actually been thinking, in the last week I thought, we should really do a hit at some point we'll do a Hitchcock special and we'll just talk about Hitchcock for a, an episode. Um, because yeah, the, the fact is the man is a master of making films and, uh, and the fact that we're even going Hitchcock, uh, Vertigo is not our favorite Hitchcock film. That's just a mark of how great a filmmaker he was. Absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> 
Dial M for Murder, as I said, is probably my favourite. Psycho as well, just sort of these fantastic yeah. films. You look at his, you know, filmography. It's just astonishing that someone made yeah. so not just so many films, but so many amazing films. Yeah, so many brilliant, brilliant films, definitely. Oh, I suppose that's all for um, failed listeners. I hope you've enjoyed it because it's probably something we'll do again somewhere down the line. Oh, yeah. Uh, James, before we finish up, do you want to just tell everyone where they can find the website and things? Yes. Okay, so um, find us at failedcritics.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritic or go to our Twitter handle, which is at failedcritics. And on there, um, we'll tweet about the films we're watching, but we also tell you every day the best film that's on television. So that's a good one to follow as well. Excellent. And the next podcast out will be uh, Triple Bill, since we've split those into two. That's right. And in the next review, we will be reviewing The Bourne Legacy.